The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible in part by our signature partner, Amgen. Committed to transforming new ideas and discoveries into medicines for patients with serious illness. In our last episode, you heard how a small group of survivors met in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1986 to form the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, or NCCS. As one of the founders, Fitzhugh Mullen put it in a TV interview, the need was clear. We have better clubs for, I don't know, narrow-gauge railway freaks than we do for cancer survivors. No offense to any listeners who might identify as railway freaks. We want to see survivors organized for services to one another, for mutuality, for friendship, for support, for veterans helping the rookie. They knew that cancer survivors share a common, transforming experience. But they also knew that every person's cancer experience is unique. It's influenced by the kind of cancer you have, your age, and your gender, by how much money you have, your sexual orientation, by the color of your skin, your cultural background, and where you come from. As the NCCS grew, they realized they had a problem. Despite their efforts, they were struggling to reach poor, rural, and minority communities where survivorship resources were especially scarce. Today, the Cancer Society released a study concluding that poor people are more likely to die from the disease than other Americans, despite recent advances in cancer detection and in treatment. But on the whole, mainstream cancer groups were not reaching the people most in need of their help. Poverty and lack of insurance were barriers to early detection and timely treatment. There was one doctor that, that told you on the phone that uh, in this country, if you, you, if you don't have insurance, then you die. I kept thinking I can't afford to be sick. I sure can't afford to have cancer. From Offscript Media, my name is Matthew Zachary, and this is The Cancer Mavericks, A History of Survivorship. While lack of money certainly hindered cancer treatment, for some patients of color, there was another obstacle to seeing a doctor. Trust. The United States Public Health Service conducted a study beginning in 1932 that involved deliberately withholding treatment from a group of 400 black men who were afflicted with syphilis. This study became known as the Tuskegee Experiment. 128 black men died essentially at the hand of their own government. Dr. Harold Freeman began working at Harlem Hospital in 1967. He was a highly trained surgeon specializing in breast cancer, and he wanted to serve a poor black community that needed his skills. What he wanted to do as an Afrocentric individual was to cut cancer out of Harlem. That's Courtney Bowen, a longtime colleague of Dr. Freeman's and director of training at the Harold Freeman Patient Navigation Institute. Harlem Hospital's five-year survival rate for breast cancer was low. Just 39% of patients made it five years after diagnosis compared with about 75% of breast cancer patients nationwide. Dr. Freeman soon realized why. 
they were coming to the hospital too late. You have a 52-year-old black woman who comes in with not a breast, but just cancer. And you can't see anything but cancer. Well, how could this happen? In a country that has the highest technology and medicine in the world. Even the most advanced surgical methods couldn't have done much for these women. Their cancer was already too severe. By the 1970s, the war on cancer was all over the news. And the National Cancer Act had brought tons of money for research. But poor patients still couldn't access existing treatments. Poverty has become an offense which is punishable by death. Dr. Freeman said that half the breast cancer patients at the hospital showed up with disease that was too advanced to be cured. Why had they waited so long? For patients living paycheck to paycheck, getting screened wasn't so simple. Many didn't have health insurance and were worried about high medical bills. They'd have to take time off work to go to the doctor and lose wages, or maybe risk losing the job entirely. If they did make it to the hospital, they might sit in the ER for hours, only to be told they were in the wrong place and needed to go somewhere else. Sometimes a painless lump uh, seems uh, uh, not as painful as the process of being diagnosed and treated to some of these people. In 1979, Dr. Freeman started a free clinic at the hospital called the Breast Examination Center of Harlem. It was open on Saturday mornings. Free screening had plenty of support in theory, but in practice, it wasn't so easy. There was no space for them to get it done. Or even if you get the space, the institution would not provide the mammography and the doctor's service for free. That's Courtney Bowen again. He says at the time, opening the clinic was a renegade move. The space that they used during the week for their regular clinic, he just kind of like opening up on a Saturday. He just go there and open it without permission. And we work in a public hospital and we are one of 11 public hospitals. The institution is like, who's paying for this? Oh, you got to close that. Ultimately, Dr. Freeman got the powers that be on board. But screening was only half the battle. You're finding these lesions and those kind of things. Finding them is one thing. Now, how do we treat them? Some of them are still undocumented. They're still uninsured, underinsured. They can't pay for the service. Survival rates for poor Americans of any race were about 10 to 15 percent lower than for middle class and rich people. In 1988, Dr. Freeman became the president of the American Cancer Society. He used this national platform to focus on the intersections of cancer, poverty, and race. He believed that it was time for a new strategy in the war against cancer, guerrilla warfare. Where we have not effectively waged the war is in the trenches uh, where people really do exist, in their neighborhoods, in their homes. And we need to conduct a war with real people in America to transfer the technology of, of early diagnosis to all American people, regardless of their ability to pay. Under Freeman's leadership, the ACS convened hearings on cancer in the poor in seven cities across the United States. Poor people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds testified about the difficulties of accessing care. Dr. Freeman shared some of these stories on the McNeil Lair News Hour. Another striking example is a family in California. The husband is a rancher, uh, married to a woman who he holds very dear. 
But they entertained getting a divorce uh, because that was the only way that they could get insurance to cover the bone marrow transplant that their seven-year-old daughter needed. How was that? How would that? Bo- I mean, what, what, what's involved in fighting the bureaucracy to get treatment for cancer? Well, first of all, if you don't have money, Charlene, and you don't have insurance, you simply have great difficulty getting into a, a health care system that is a fee-for-service system. Being diagnosed with cancer is hard enough on its own. Dealing with the healthcare system can be confusing, time-consuming, just emotionally and physically draining. I remember my dad on the phone endlessly fighting with insurance to get my treatments covered. Being poor makes fighting that bureaucracy all so much harder. It kills people who don't have to die. Because with cancer, the difference between life and death is often a matter of time. Dr. Freeman thought, what if each patient had a point person to help them navigate the healthcare system? Someone to help with questions like, How do I pay for this? How do I get to my appointment? What does this actually mean? In 1990, Dr. Freeman created a program at Harlem Hospital that did just that. He called the point person a patient navigator. The first navigators were lay people from the community without medical training. And at first, it took some time to refine the patient navigator's role. What was their job versus what the doctors, nurses, and social workers did so everyone was on the same page? Courtney Bowen says it was a little like this. So why is these guys in the clinic? Why, why are they here? We didn't know what the boundaries were. So if the patient said they need this, we go look for it. We didn't consider that we were stepping on anyone's toes. We're in the clinic, we're in the nurse's way, those kind of things. So they start to, what is Dr. Freeman doing? You know, I know he's the department head and all, but what's this nonsense? But soon it was clear how navigators could make their jobs a lot easier, especially when it came to communicating with patients. The first thing they hear is, I have this disease, I'm going to die. That is what I call the peanut effect, you know, peanut from the cartoon. Wah, 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 wah. Because anything else the doctor says means nothing at all because they're not hearing anything. Since navigators came from the communities they served, patients trusted them. They could explain in layman's terms what the doctor meant. The patient should understand what's being told to them. They should understand whether it's going to be painful or not. Remember, this was in the early 90s, long before we had WebMD. So they came to value how the navigators helped them communicate. It saved them a lot of time. Even just telling the patient, what you're going to have a biopsy. You could talk to the navigator. He'll explain to you what that is. As the practice of navigation grew, specialized tracks for oncology nurses and social workers emerged so they could apply their specialized skills in the patient navigation model too. Navigation also saved the hospital's money. Before the program was introduced at Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx, their colon cancer screenings had a 95% no-show rate. That means 100 people were scheduled for colonoscopy, only five of them would show, yet you're paying the doctors for their time. Within a year, they went from having a 95% no-show rate to a 5% no-show rate. So they completely reversed the uh, situation. Needless to say, that particular study 
forces the Health and Hospital Corporation to implement patient navigation in all of its public hospitals. By the year 2000, Harlem Hospital's five-year survival rate for breast cancer had jumped significantly. Here's Dr. Freeman on NPR. If they had a finding on the mammogram, we navigated them to diagnosis rapidly and through treatment. We changed the five-year survival in Harlem by actual study from 39% to 70%. The program was so successful, it became a model nationwide. Just 15 years after the first patient navigators began working in Harlem, President George W. Bush signed the concept into law. The Patient Navigator Outreach and Chronic Disease Prevention Act of 2005 provided funding to hire and train patient navigators. This ABC News report from 2013 showed the impact of these personal relationships. Ms. Santana? Sheila Santana believes she wouldn't have had the strength to get through the system without her patient navigator, Patricia Montanez. They have a lot, enough, if you ask me, to deal with just knowing that they have cancer. I make all their appointments. I make sure that the results are coming in on time. Without her, I don't think I would have been able to make this far as I've come. And now I'm cancer-free, so that makes it even better. Today, the Harold Freeman Patient Navigation Institute has trained over a 1,000 patient navigators who've changed the game for so many people. But too many poor patients still fall through the cracks. Next, cancer forces you to think about the time you have and what you want to do with it. And maybe how you can make this disease suck less for others. I begged for them to say, bring me someone, show me someone, plant someone by my side and to take me through this that has had this disease. And I swore that if I got well, I would do just that. And I do. Stick with us. Additional support for the Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible by the following partners. Bristol-Myers Squibb, Daiichi Senkyo, Merck, CGen, Takeda, Pharmacyclics, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen. Learn more about these supporters at cancermavericks.com. Before I started Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization for adolescents and young adults affected by cancer, my good friend, Craig Lustig, a fellow brain cancer survivor, asked me a question. I remember when we met, you had said something to me along the lines of, how would you like to be a cancer advocate? And I said, what the f*** is a cancer advocate? Before that, someone else had asked Craig the same thing. Do you want to be an advocate? He was a bit more polite than I was. <laughs> I didn't quite say that to Ellen, but... Yeah, that's kind of how I felt. Over time, I realized being a cancer advocate could mean a lot of things. One person who stands apart, who really changed the way that I think about advocacy, is Ellen Stovall. She's the one who asked Craig to be an advocate and was a dear friend and mentor to both of us. As a longtime leader of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, she changed my life and the lives of so many others for the better. 
producer Mara Laser tells the story of how Ellen and other activists transformed the landscape of cancer advocacy in the 90s. Great advocates are often magnetic. They attract more and more people to fight for their own visions of the future. There was just so much warmth and sort of ease of connection with her. That's Matthew's friend, Craig Lustig, again. He works at the Georgetown Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center, where he leads program development, communications, and operations. Before his cancer experience and health policy career, he was an ad man. He worked on campaigns for companies like Procter & Gamble and Folgers Coffee. Post my cancer experience and my active treatment, I was a very um, angry and kind of unhappy person. I come through this with a lot of scars, if you will, um, physical and emotional. Ellen gave him hope. I think what she helped me almost therapeutically to do was to understand that advocacy takes many forms, but what Ellen was doing was sort of bigger policy advocacy. I am Ellen Stovall, and I'm a 24-year survivor of two bouts with cancer. Um, I'm testifying before you today in my capacity as executive director of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. uh, Ellen's own cancer story dates Uh, back to the dawn of the war on cancer. She was 24 and had just given birth to her first child when she learned she had Hodgkin's disease. She was diagnosed and treated the same year that the National Cancer Act was passed by Nixon in December of 1971. That's Dr. Julie Rowland, former director of the Office of Cancer Survivorship at the National Cancer Institute. She was also a close friend of Ellen's. And at the time, she was just months post-delivery of her son and so was not eligible for clinical trial that was ongoing for Hodgkin's disease. Ellen wasn't eligible because she had a menstrual cycle, which was a common reason people were excluded from clinical trials in the 70s. At the time, most scientists were male and menstruation was seen as a variable that could negatively impact research. Restricting variables can be important for isolating cause and effect. However, thoughtful scientists might point out hormonal variation exists, whether or not a person has a menstrual cycle. But in 1971, this meant Ellen didn't qualify for the trial. So she had the traditional treatment for Hodgkin's, radiation and chemo. Thankfully, her cancer went into remission for years, until the 80s. Her disease recurred, at which point she was eligible for the newly discovered, very effective treatment for Hodgkin's disease that she was then able to receive. And she bargained. She said, if I survive this, knowing that she wanted desperately to be there for her son, that she would do whatever she could to bring advocacy to work on cancer. Ellen described this experience on the Today Show. When I was diagnosed, I found it so important for someone to identify with, and there was no one at that time. People were not surviving Hodgkin's disease the way they are today. And I, I begged for them to say, Tell, bring me someone, show me someone plant someone by my side and to take me through this that has had this disease. And I swore that if I got well, I would do just that. And I, I did. And I do. 
Ellen felt only a patient could really understand what other patients were going through. They've really been there, and that's where I fit in. I had Hodgkin's disease myself, and I know that the terror that I felt experiencing that would lend something very special to a patient if I could be there for them. She was living in suburban Washington, and she was appalled at the lack of survivorship support um, at George Washington, where she was treated. That's Judy Pearson, a cancer survivor and the author of From Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement. So she created a support organization for young adults because she was a young adult when she was diagnosed. When Ellen saw a pamphlet for the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, it immediately got her attention. Soon, she attended her first NCCS assembly in Albuquerque. These were meetings where people from across the country gathered to strategize responses to discrimination, stigma, and the general dismissal of people living with cancer. By 1991, she was the chair of the assembly. And by 1992, she was helping them look for office space in Washington, D.C. To have a greater impact on national policy and research funding, the NCCS moved its headquarters from New Mexico to the capital. Here's Dr. Julia Rowland again. They needed the visibility and the access to political entities to really make survivorship a movement. Fitzhugh Mullen, then president of NCCS, insisted that Ellen take the executive director position. She became a compelling advocate for cancer survivors in Washington. She dreaded public speaking, gave her enormous anxiety to do it. And yet she was one of the most articulate and compelling speakers that I know of in the field. I think when you think of advocacy and having been down and testified on the Hill, they don't really want to hear the talking heads like me. I can spew data from here to kingdom come. It's when survivors themselves stand up and say, this is my experience. This is what happened to me. I am an educated consumer and these are the challenges I face and nobody's listening. Ellen wasn't just good at telling her own story. She had a special knack for bringing together other advocates in the cancer space and making them feel heard. It can be very difficult for different organizations representing different disease states within the cancer community to work together. As more advocacy groups emerged, they were sometimes territorial, fighting over funding and defending their own specific interests. It can be very challenging. For a variety of reasons. Matthew's friend, Craig Lustig, again. Whether that's financial or the feeling that your issues are not my issues. And that's what Ellen understood well. Under Ellen's leadership, the NCCS mobilized cancer groups to advocate for policies that would improve all cancer survivors' lives. I think she was able to approach these conversations with other advocates in a way that that always made you feel like you were going to be part of the solution and that these issues were not NCCS issues, they were your issues too. In 1994, NCCS invited guests to its first town hall by asking, do you ever wonder how health policy is made? At the time, everyone was talking about health insurance. 
That's why I've offered a comprehensive plan, a real plan to rebuild America, ensure quality, affordable health care for all. NCCS was determined to educate survivors on their coverage options and ensure politicians heard their concerns about health insurance. Together we can make America work. Understanding my own insurance plan is confusing, let alone policies from 30 years ago. So I called up an expert to give us some context. Karen Pollitz has spent decades thinking about health policy. She worked for the Department of Health and Human Services in the 90s, was project director of Georgetown University's Health Policy Center, and is now a senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. You know, the uninsured rate then was growing at about a million a year. You know, it was it was a problem. Karen says half of Americans who didn't have health insurance worked full time. Their employers just didn't offer insurance. There has been, since the early 1900s, a movement and interest in getting to universal health insurance coverage in the U.S. Karen is a health policy scholar, and she's also a cancer survivor. I am. Yep, four times. Yep. She's had three recurrences of breast cancer and another diagnosis of uterine cancer. And that's when I got really interested in health insurance. (laughs) I was already kind of working on policy issues, but all of a sudden it was more than just a policy issue for me. It was very personal because all of a sudden I had a pre-existing condition. Thankfully, Karen had good insurance through her job, but she was overwhelmed when she learned she had cancer. A friend suggested she call Ellen Stovall. I just kind of called her up and said, Um, we haven't met, but could we? And told her who I was. And she said, absolutely. And I went over for a meeting and we spent, I don't know, half the afternoon together. So she was just a very warm and wonderful and brilliant person. Ellen understood how the system made it difficult for cancer survivors to access care. When her husband started his own business, their family lost the coverage they had through his old job. Now they had to purchase their own policy. Ellen had to contact 10 different insurance companies to find one that would cover her, simply because she was a cancer survivor. She knew she was lucky to even have the means to afford insurance, and that for anything to change, survivors had to force policymakers to listen to their needs. In 1991, a survey of doctors found that over half of their patients were denied recommended cancer treatment because their policy wouldn't pay for it. Here's an interview with an insurance company rep from the 1994 documentary, What's Ailing Medicine? Um, We are trying to behave like a rational and prudent business entity. And there are some situations which cannot be made to work. And it was business, big business. We pay the highest prices for healthcare, pound for pound, of anybody on earth. Um, Just like orders of magnitude higher. Clearly, there was a lot for cancer survivors to advocate for. Not just the cost of care, but for more effective research and access to clinical trials. They weren't covered by Medicare. Advocates wanted to change that. And they wanted the FDA to speed up the process of approving life-saving drugs. Ellen testified about this before Congress. Particular attention should be devoted to the process for approving drugs, biologics, and devices that treat life-threatening diseases. 
And survivors didn't want to be refused by insurance companies for having a pre-existing condition. The beginning of the application for health insurance was this long questionnaire about your health status and your health history. Have you ever been diagnosed with cancer? As soon as I checked that box, I was uninsurable. Things have changed since then, especially since the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Insurance companies aren't allowed to reject you or charge you increased fees for pre-existing conditions anymore. That's huge. But before that, there was HIPAA, aka the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. Patient groups were active in passing this legislation. So what did HIPAA accomplish exactly? Uh, Not that much. Um, (laughs) Well, that's not true. Karen has a sense of humor. It was the beginning of federal rules to protect people from discrimination based on their pre-existing conditions. Federal regulation of insurance was new. HIPAA left many loopholes, but it was an important step. So it's still voluntary for employers to offer health benefits, um, but when they decide whether to do so, they can't offer on the basis of health status. They can't say, well, we'll give everyone health benefits who can pass a physical. I think HIPAA was the beginning of a realization on the part of a lot of diverse patient groups that maybe they did have something in common and that they also needed to get smarter about health insurance and how it works and how it doesn't work. In 1995, NCCS published a report on the urgent needs of cancer survivors called Imperatives for Cancer Care. Ellen took this document and delivered it to the director of the National Cancer Institute, Dr. Richard Klausner. Here's Dr. Julia Rowland again. He took that document read it, agreed that the arguments in it were very compelling, that we really needed more science in this area of survivorship, if you will. And he turned around and created at the National Cancer Institute the Office of Cancer Survivorship, which was monumental. An office in Washington might not sound all that exciting, but it had a huge impact on the way cancer care was delivered. The people who wrote health policy, performed surgeries, prescribed medicine and ran tests would have to listen to the concerns and experiences of patients. OCS looked beyond the cure for cancer. It funded research projects on how treatment affects people's lives. One of our funded investigators was a head and neck surgeon, and he was astonished to learn that his long-term survivors, 10, 15, 20 years out, continued to have swallowing difficulties, and some of them were at continued risk for inhaling food or liquids when they shouldn't be. It was eye-opening for some of the physicians and, and scientists taking on these studies to realize that, hey, it's not over when it's over. Cancer advocacy was shifting from the pursuit of a cure at all costs to providing the care survivors needed over the long haul. Ellen would always say, why can't we race for the care, not just race for the cure? That was producer Mara Laser. Next up, how else could cancer survivors get the country to recognize and prioritize their needs? Well, they did what activists have done for decades. They marched on Washington. We'll be back after a quick break. The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship 
is a product of Offscript Media, the first podcast network and educational publisher focused on health equity and patient advocacy. Learn more about our growing network of podcasts and critically acclaimed docuseries at Offscript.com. That's Offscript, no T, dot com. By the late 90s, Ellen Stovall and her colleagues at NCCS and the Office of Cancer Survivorship had spent years documenting the needs of cancer survivors. Advocates from many different groups had written reports, lobbied officials, and shared their stories on Capitol Hill. Uh, my name is uh, Pam Onder, and I'm a uh, breast cancer survivor. My name is Denise Villarreal, and I'm a 41-year-old cancer survivor. I am honored to appear before you today to address our nation's prostate cancer crisis. As a 10-year prostate cancer survivor, and having witnessed the death of my father and both grandfathers from this killer disease. But more than half a million Americans were still dying of cancer each year, almost three decades after the United States had declared war on cancer, just one penny out of every $10 in taxes went to cancer research. Ellen had a big vision for how to get the country's attention. A march on Washington. And not just any old march, but a star-studded event that would bring together scores of cancer organizations. A march that could not be ignored. Thank you all for coming. She set the date, September 26th, 1998. Please welcome Mr. David Crosby and Mr. Graham Nash. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Cindy Crawford. General Schwartzkopf. Reverend Jesse Jackson. Sam Donaldson and Koki Roberts, thank you for your contribution here today. If I had ever been here before, I would probably know just what to do. Hey! Don't you! Where did she get the gumption to think, I'm going to pull off this crazy stunt that might work? Because nobody else was doing it. That's my friend, Craig Lustig, again. There was nobody functioning in that space to say... We need to bring people together with cancer, regardless of the cancer that they had, to talk about these big and vital issues. We're not going to put breast on it. We're not going to put prostate on it. And this is all about everyone with cancer. The march demanded more money not only for research, but for access to care, prevention, and educational programs. They wanted Congress to double the budget of the National Cancer Institute, which at the time was just $2 billion. Here's March co-chair Sidney Kimmel. Every year, despite federal funding of cancer research, less than 24% of the thousands of cancer research proposals actually receive funding. Imagine the progress we could make if next year, Congress multiplied by a factor of four its commitment to this research. The March organizers bet that a big event would push politicians to do something about cancer. It was a massive collaborative effort, uniting a diverse range of cancer groups and survivors to amplify their collective voice. Some 200,000 people came to Washington, D.C. from all over the country. How's everybody doing? Some carried photos of friends and family members they lost to cancer. There was a wall of courage decorated with heartfelt messages 
and memories. It was an emotional day. Look around you. Embrace the sorrow that cancer has created in our lives. Feel the strength and the determination and the hope and the courage of the survivors and their families. We are the faces of cancer survivorship. We are real and we're not going away. Ellen spoke passionately about the need for cancer advocates and all Americans to band together and push for change. Cancer is our national crisis. We are activists in an impassioned, embattled, and determined fight. We have created a new movement, a revolution to end this war. We demand access to quality care for all people and not the medically privileged. We demand an end to the politics of cancer. Even Vice President Al Gore, who lost his older sister to lung cancer, was there. This is not just a a noon rally for efforts to fight cancer. This marks high noon for cancer. The undisputed Queen of Soul, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Aretha Franklin. How's everybody doing? We lost the Queen of Soul herself to pancreatic cancer in 2018. Uh, I'm very sad to report this morning uh, that the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, has died. We've been reporting over the past few days that she had been receiving hospice care in her home in Detroit. There you see her, an American legend. A few days after the march, Congress approved a 16% increase in funding for the National Institutes of Health. This was part of a five-year plan to double the agency's budget, which would get some cash into the National Cancer Institute and the Office of Cancer Survivorship. The march was a watershed moment for cancer advocacy. It proved that different groups could come together to mobilize awareness and resources to fight all cancers. Ellen understood a lot more needed to be done. That's why she was so passionate about recruiting and training new cancer advocates like me and Craig. She knew rallying cries like no more cancer or race for the cure sell better than the gargantuan challenge of taking on our big, messy healthcare system. And she knew survivors needed more than just a cure. They needed care and equal access to the scientific advances that did come from research. Ellen kept on fighting for this until her last breath. She died in 2016 
from heart complications linked to her initial cancer treatment. Next time on The Cancer Mavericks, we'll check in with some survivors and hear how their lives have changed since diagnosis and what they think needs to happen to improve survivorship care. The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is a production of Offscript Media in partnership with Small Good Thing. The executive producer is Steve Lichtine. Our senior producers are Susie Armitage, Mary Rose Madden, and Andrew McDowell. Our associate producers are Mariah Dennis and Mara Laser. And our production assistant is Sophia Kurzius. Sound design and mixing is by David Schulman. And our music is composed and performed by me, Matthew Zachary. For more information about this series, visit CancerMavericks.com. That's CancerMavericks.com. Thank you.